Today is the uh, Tuesday, the 26th of September, 2017, and uh, tonight for the talk, I'm going to give um, talk read a bit of from a, from an email that I got last week, and, and and comment on it a little, and just for people who maybe haven't been to Taisho before, um, it's fine to move if you need to during Taisho. It's also fine to look up. You don't have to stay with your eyes down if you find it more helpful to have the eyes up, but it's really up to you whether you have them up or down. So I'll just uh, leap into this leap into this email and and um, go off on some different tangents from it. Um, I think it's got some interesting material in it, and I expect that it will be it will resonate with with people. It starts off. Um, practice is so difficult. Why don't we have a clear view of reality? Why don't we understand the essence of everything? It seems like the original sin of Catholicism, a prison sentence to serve, a divine promise, a punishment. It is so difficult to understand. Some souls seem to be prisoners of a punishing karma. Others, like us, try desperately to find an answer that might wipe clean the grimy lenses of our conditioning and thought. So just um, to start with this practice is so difficult. It is difficult. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it's difficult because of what we have to work with and the effort that we have to make in practice. And what we have to work with is our, our, our habit forces. Get, get, see if we can't get, see through our, um, the filters that we have between us and things. So this question, why don't we have a clear understanding of reality? There's nothing we can, we can um, go back to and say, say um, this is where things started to go wrong. And I, and I guess in this regard, that the, there is something a little bit like original sin in, in uh, our tradition, in the sense of there being uh, an original ignorance, something that, that we're, we're born with. It's not a divine punishment. It's, it's not coming from, from some um, uh, wrathful deity. Um, but it's, can still, it can still feel so much, uh, so much a part of us that it can feel like a prison sentence. We don't know when it's going to end.
reading reading this about about um, original original sin. A few days a few days after a couple of days after I read this, I was reading a passage from a, from a book. Um, of writing by Karl Ove Nausgaard. He's a Norwegian writer, really a, a brilliant writer, so not very know, well known for his four volume um, account of his own life. Uh, highly, highly realist, um, you can't call it fiction at all, um, account of his, his, a very personal account of his, his um, his childhood and his adolescence and young years, and um, I think the, the last volume is just being translated, or in the process of being translated into English. But anyhow, this book is different. It's called Autumn, and um, he says in the introduction that he's writing it for his unborn daughter, his his fourth child, second daughter. And that he, he says in the introduction that he wants to show her the wonder wonder of the world and to to set forth in this book what makes life worth living. And he, he poses this question, what makes life worth living? And then he says, no child asks itself that question. To children, life is self-evident. Life goes without saying. Whether it is good or bad makes no difference. This is because children don't see the world, don't observe the world, don't contemplate the world, but are so deeply immersed in the world that they don't distinguish between it and their own selves. You could understand this as there's a kind of, there is a kind of um, not knowing in this, the way that children um, uh, meet the world. He goes on to say that it's only when, when this this um, distance, or a, a distance between between what a, a child is and what the world is, when this arises, then it's that then that the question arises: What makes life worth living? Then, then Nasgard goes on uh, a little bit later in the introduction to, to answer this question or attempt to answer it. He says, is it the feeling of pressing down the door handle and pushing the door open, feeling it swing inward or outward on its hinges, always easily and willingly, and entering a new room? Yes, the door opens like a wing, and that alone makes life worth living. To someone who has lived for many years, the door is obvious, the garden is obvious, the sky and the sea are obvious, even the moon, suspended in the night sky and shining brightly above the rooftops, is obvious. The world expresses its being, but we're not listening, 
And since we're no longer immersed in it, experiencing it as a part of ourselves, it is as if it escapes us. We open the door, but it doesn't mean anything. It's nothing, just something we do to get from one room to another. And now addressing his daughter, he says, his, still, his um, three months in the womb daughter, I want to show you our world as it is now. The door, the floor, the water tap and the sink, the garden chair close to the wall beneath the kitchen window, the sun, the water, the trees. You will come to see it in your own way. You will experience things for yourself and live a life of your own. So of course it is primarily for my own sake that I am doing this. Showing you the world, little one, makes my life worth living. So it gives this example of the door, the door that when you press the handle swings open. And he says that alone makes life worth living. Of course, a door that sticks would be just as amazing and wonderful. That alone could be what make, makes life worth living. The question, of course, that arises for us is how do we, how do we reconnect in this way? How do we get beyond the obvious, obviousness of the door, the concept of, of door that we have in our mind that are, prevents us from actually experiencing the, the doorness of the door, or the garden, or the sky, or the moon, or the person we're speaking to? That's, that's where our Zazen comes in, of course. It is, it is an effort to, to reconnect, to, to um, clear away what gets between us and our experience. It is what the, the writer of this email is talking about when he, when he says, we try desperately to find an answer that might wipe clean the grimy lenses of our conditioning and our thought. So that's definitely, that's definitely one aspect of practice that we're, we're seeking to overcome this, this uh, distance that opens up at some point in our early years. As we, as we get more of a sense of ourselves as a subject, then the objects appear. Lady talks about the, the, um, how we, we try to find a way out and sometimes it seems like we want to escape from our lives. And 
and it is possible to use spiritual practice in this way as a, as a form of escape and it's one of the things we have to be alert to um, that we're not that we're not using the practice to run from life that we don't become attached to the pleasant experiences we might have as a result of practice but have the sense of of practice as a as a form of of research of examination but one of the one of the i think it's fair to say one of the ironies of practice is that we come to practice seeking relief and what often happens is we actually come up against our baggage. He writes, we're on a journey weighed down by too heavy baggage and don't even know where we're going. Carl Jung once said, the only way out is through. Through whatever our baggage is. We have to, we have to go through it. Lift, lift up the different pieces in our luggage and, and examine them, see them for what they are, and let them go. He says we don't even know where we're going. And that's, that's true, and a lot of practice is, involves um, looking into darkness because to really see into our nature uh, means putting aside what we know But in a sense, if we can understand that, that is in itself a direction. And that's where having a community comes in, where we can be um, reminded of this path and reassured that we are, it's okay to be groping in the dark. Einstein once, once said, how do I work? I grope. A very unpleasant sensation, but it's necessary at times. This is the desire to comes to immerse oneself in stupidity, in illusion, and forget all questions, all doubts, until death carries us off, we know not where or why. I'm sure everybody has at times had this impulse just to, to um,
go into dullness, numbness. It has a kind of safe, comfortable place. But actually, um, the the prospect of our death can can uh, help motivate us to not just um, take refuge there in dullness and numbness. We don't know when death will come, and um, the kinds of uh, trials it'll put us it'll pull us through, and so to to get the get the the practice or the ha our habits of mind as second nature as possible in us is really what what can stand us in good stead when facing um, the the breaking up of this this heap of mind and body that we each uh, take to be real. What is this? It's so difficult to ask, really. And and person who who's writing this email that's that's his koan what is this then he says beauty consoles me but only if I manage to not ask myself what it means important to understand that if when you're working on what is this that it's that is a different question from saying what is the, the meaning of this when, when we ask ourselves, what is the meaning of this, or what is the meaning of life? Imply, implicit in this is that we're trying to extract something, some meaning, from experience. That's a different question from asking, what is this? It's, the question here is not about extracting something from our experience, but simply experiencing our experience directly. He finishes up by saying, each day, along with my vows, I express my gratitude for this life that has been given to me. But then I waste most of my day immersed in delusion. Is, is probably f very few practices that are more helpful than, than uh, gratitude. It's really an exalted state of mind. Uh, Meister Eckhart said, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that would suffice. And sometimes it's good to just take it up as a very specific practice in terms of, you know, every, every day, um, the end of our day, just to look back and see if we can't specify those things in that day which, for which we're grateful.
Then he goes on to say, but I waste most of my day immersed in delusion. We, f we forget what our aspiration is over and over again. We, we turn away from just this direct experience of this again and again. But on the other hand, to be aware of this is, is uh, an important step. To be, to have this sense of a kind of um, a realization of how, how far we have to go in, in fully embodying what we may know to be true on an intellectual level. Reading this reminded me of something that Master Dogen said. He said, when the Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When the Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. To not be self-satisfied, to, to, to recognize that we have a lot of work to do. This is, this is fertile ground. And this, this recognizing that there's a lot of work to, to do goes hand in hand with our recognizing our potential, what is possible. That it is possible to, to wake up, to not be alienated from our lives, to really be fully engaging. Thinking that we're, we're how we've arrived is, um, is often a form of defense against really um, acknowledging the work there, there is to be done. So this is another little practice that we can undertake at the end of the day is just to look back over the day and and ask ourselves how much of my day was caught up in in self concern and and uh, what we call that what we call the eight worldly winds fear of pain and loss blame, ill repute, and, and then the flip side, desire for, for pleasure and gain and, and praise, fame, recognition, identity. Because how much we are uh, sort of slave to these, um, these worldly winds is um, is a good indicator of how our practice is going. Are we, 
able to be less reactive to to anger more slowly to uh, have patience with people to be open-hearted with them these are the real these are real indicators of our pra- how we're going in our practice not so much how any particular round might feel or or you know have a we have a good round we have a bad round the, these go up and down but how are we in our lives that's what really really counts it's going back to the this topic of um, that our email writer brings up of of, um, original sin that comes to us from, from our our Christian heritage. Later on, um, Carlo Vanasgaard in his book Autumn, which it's made up of short passages about different different things, um, cars, um, lice, many many different um, items in the book. A few, and then a few pages about each item, and one item uh, is on badges, and he talks about the beauty of um, of a badger and its its uh, the way it it travels through the through the forest, and and um, he tells a story of having um, several encounters with a badger as a teenager when he would come home. Uh, through some forest along the edge of a river, and the river was the the pathway of of the of this particular badger. And so they would, in the night, um, have these encounters. And he talks about how the badger would would be regarding him and 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 cogitating in its own way about him as it it met him in the night. And then he says, I truly wished him, the badger, well. Now when I drive along the motorway to Malmö and see one of the beautiful black and white snouted badgers lying bloodied and motionless on the roadway, I am, I am filled with a dull, hopeless rage, for the thing that killed it is a structure that I help to maintain and which works so well for me that I am unwilling to renounce it. And even if I were to do so, if I stopped driving a car, it wouldn't change anything, neither the rising global temperature nor the dead animals in the road. It is an original sin. It belongs to everyone and can only be undone by all of us together. It comes back and offers this view, uh, other view of original sin as a kind of a collective thing. But before before we talk about that, just I would I would take issue with with his saying that um, his stopping driving a car wouldn't necessarily change anything. Of course, it's a tiny a tiny action, but individual change can help to create a kind of paradigm shift and uh, a big collective shift which surely is what's necessary in our current um, situation 
comes from lots of individuals making decisions. So um, I would question him on that. And there's also, there's also here this danger of, of thinking, well, it's an original sin, it's something that's innate in us, and um, therefore um, it's not much we can do about it. Certainly in Buddhism, something innate like our original uh, unconsciousness or ignorance, even though it's, it's innate, it's not fixed, it's something that we can, can uh, obviously uh, illuminate. That's the whole point of practice, the whole point of, of the Dharma, really. But from another, from another point of view, it can be helpful, helpful to understand that um, it's not something we have to feel a kind of, of, of personal guilt for, uh, but recognizing it's, that it comes, it comes with our human conditioning. And he points here to, to the nature of this, of this um, original ignorance when he says um, about the thing that killed the badger it is a structure that I help to maintain and which works so well for me that I am unwilling to renounce it so this is this is getting closer to the point here that it's something um, we our attachments are at the core of this original ignorance One Vajrayana teacher um, puts, puts this original uh, <coughs> ignorance in, in these terms. The root of our current unsatisfactory condition in a cycle of death and rebirth is our innate tendency to, review, to view our personal self in a reified manner. We also have an innate tendency to view all other phenomena in a reified manner. In other words, we take our self to be uh, solid and real and then we do everything in our power to protect it and um, uh, hold, to our, hold to what we feel is beneficial to us and, and, and uh, compete for that and then uh, push away and feel aversion towards what we think of as other. So the fundamental ignorance we, we are caught up in is self-grasping. And then the action that, that comes out of that, that grasping onto a sense of self is a self-partiality, favoring ourselves, discounting others. 
that's ignorance in action, you could say. Recently, I heard a news, news item post-election where um, Gareth Morgan um, said he was really dis disappointed with New, New Zealanders because they had voted selfishly. They'd voted on self-interest alone. Um, we could see this as certainly as, as sour grapes coming from him and people people not supporting his party and he can be he's a person who can be blunt and arrogant even and talk down to people um, but I re realized that I, I had myself got into that thinking that as well that that dis and disappointment uh, um, perhaps premature but disappointment at the at the um, the vote for for change not being in the majority um, that that people had voted maybe out of fear or um, selfishness around the uh, taxes and these sorts of things, and just realizing that it's all quite easy to see. Um, it's easier to to be able to point the finger and say somebody's acting out of self-interest, self-partiality. And quite a lot harder to to see our own and to see the ways in which our choices might have been been um, coming out of other attachments than the than the people who we perhaps disagree with. But politics is a tricky game because it's not a matter of just of having having good policies, but politicians have to be able to connect with people and and bring them along with them at least at least to some degree that has to happen in a democracy and a really great leader is someone who can bring out the best in people who can help people to see a bigger self that is beyond their own narrow self that they might want to defend or, or preserve and that that's that's a necessary part of of um, of changing a paradigm which is what is so needed in our in present human predicament where we have got to the point where we're way we've gone way out of balance in the way that we are using the resources of, of our planet. I heard somebody talking about water purity who, who um, I hope I've got this right because I, have, I just thought of it now, I didn't check it, but he was saying that, that human beings and all the animals that we eat now account for some 98% of um, uh, living creatures. I don't know if that was bio, bio, in terms of bonus, it can't have been but um, a huge disproportionate uh, growth in terms of, of uh, dominating the planet. And we, we are just heading towards destruction if we don't let go of, of um, 
our way of life in so many ways, how we use our resources, how we go to, how we travel. To finish up, just reading a little bit from the Path to Bodhidharma, the teachings of Shodo Harada Roshi, um, a, a contemporary Zen teacher still alive, teaching in Japan and in uh, um, the west coast of the United States. And here is he's talking talking a little bit about about um, our practice and what it means, or what it is. He says koan work and susokan, susokan is a specific kind of breath practice, are not about attaining a quietistic state. They must become your total life energy, engaged in with the entire body and with the inner eye fully open. The first case of the Munonkan explains it clearly. Zazen must involve every bit of your mind and every bit of your being, all 360 bones and joints and 84,000 hair follicles. In the face of such total awareness, random thoughts and fantasies soon vanish. In true Zazen, not so much as a speck must remain of dualistic notions of the self. In other words, we return to the purity of that early child before the distance opens up between ourselves and the world. Our existence fills the universe and it is this existence that speaks words, that moves the body, that carries on the activities of everyday life. It is only when we realize this inner essence that koan work has any meaning. Zazen is not a trance. The eyes are fully open, the ears are fully open, the mind is fully open, and inner and outer worlds are one. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in the zendo, walking, or cleaning the grounds. The essence is the same. Or if you're changing the baby's nappies, or writing a letter, to um, some government somewhere about an injustice. In this way, align your body and mind so that absolutely nothing superfluous remains. This is the state called no mind, the nature of which is impossible to explain. Thus we describe it as a fully aligned mind. I'll repeat that. Thus we describe it as a fully aligned mind. The spirit should always be clear, vast and luminous. Not that we should cling to the notion of maintaining an empty mind or endlessly tell ourselves to avoid all thought. This is still delusion and must be transcended as well. Not of course should we, nor of course should we go about searching for understanding in books or in the words of others. This simply causes uncertainty and aimless wandering of the mind, 
quickly dissipating any concentration that may have been gathered through Zazen. When filled with thoughts, the mind tends towards anxiety and dejection. When free of them, it becomes naturally fresh and relaxed. Our facial expression clears and our lives are filled with light. From this is born the true way of being and living. I see this often in, in Sishin, where at a, a certain point, uh, people will start coming in and their faces are, are, have completely changed. The, the way in which the, the, the facial expression is held by the sense of self has dissolved and the face becomes completely at rest. Radiant, fresh. This explanation, however, does not yet express the full purpose of Zazen. At the entrance of a Zen temple, we often see the words kya kya shoko, watch your step. And I saw that this, this also, I'm just looking at a book about Korean temples, and the same, the same characters appear also um, in, the, in the entranceway in, in Korean Zen temples. Look under your feet. Look where you're stepping. What these words are telling us is to be aware of everything we do. We take off our footwear attentively and in such a way that later no one has to rearrange it correctly for us. We put our shoes at the side of the entranceway, not in the middle, so that other people may more easily slip out of their shoes. In this way, even to the way in which we take off our shoes, Continual awareness is necessary. And not only continual awareness, but panoramic awareness. When we put our shoes, when we put our shoes down, we're not just thinking about ourselves, but of who's coming next. And if we apply this to um, environmental issues, it means thinking about what our children and our grandchildren are going to have to deal with. And taking care that there are future generations of, of all the species that are under threat. The words kyaka shoko do not, of course, apply only to our feet and shoes. They remind us to remain attentive in our entire way of living. If we keep our room in order, then our home is kept in order. And next, our neighborhood is kept in order. And next, society is put in order. In this way, step by step, the nation, the natural environment, and finally the whole planet are put in order. The entire universe then comes into order. Thus, when we regulate our mind, this circle extends to include the whole planet and then the entire universe. To align your own mind, to put it in order, is to correct and put society in order. When Master Joshu said, when you've finished your gruel, be sure to wash your bowls. This is from a koan. He was showing us how the process of creating order is not something special or unusual. 
It is living a simple and natural life in a simple and natural way. If we do this, then order manifests naturally and of itself. There is nothing special that has to be done in order to produce or maintain it. In your everyday life, if your way of being is in order and your mind's creative and inventive energies are full and consistent, then everything around you will spontaneously and naturally come into order as well. This is living Zazen, useful throughout our lives. And this is so needed in our world, this balance. In a world that is so out of balance, for there to be people who can be living and acting out of a sense of true order is, is incomparable. When the Buddha spoke from the top of Vulture Peak, he held a single flower in front of everyone. This was just not any flower, it was the Buddha's experience, the manifesting of the Buddha's very essence. Even if it is true that humans are simply another type of animal, as some people so dismissively put it, we are not here simply to live out our lives eating and sleeping. If we simply live and die as animals do, then our existence as human beings has no significance. To be truly human, we must live in a humane and dignified way. We are not alive merely to accumulate things and fulfill our desires. Our life, our mind, how brightly can they shine and illuminate all that we encounter? Zen is the direct realization of the divine light as it exists right here within our bodies. To have the exquisite teachings of the sutras come forth from our very own bodies, expressed in our every word and every action, that is the point. Unless we experience this, our Zen is not genuine. With our wonderful human mind and spirit, we are not mere animals. We are called to live our lives in the best way possible. This is the understanding that Master Joshua expressed so that the young monk too might be able to understand. If we view our Zazen as something separate and independent from our actual everyday lives, then it has no meaning whatsoever. In this real world, in our actual living bodies, we must discover to what degree we can refine and develop our creative and inventive potential, and to what extent we can shine forth with a great and brilliant light throughout our lives. We must examine ourselves always in this manner, employing the same creative energy we use in our Zazen to see ourselves clearly and never turn our gaze away. To develop such watchfulness to its highest level is our most important task. It is through Zazen that we nurture and develop this ability. Thus we can see the crucial importance of meditation in the insecure, ever-changing society of today. Zazen enables us to live in a way that expresses our true humanity so that we can live and develop in accord with the truth. Our lifetime is not so very long. In the time you have left, 
Live in the way indicated by Master Joshua when he said, when you've finished your gruel, be sure to wash your bowls. How brightly can you make your bowls shine? You have to work energetically and deeply on this. It's not someone else's problem. Only you can resolve it. Your life in this world is not someone else's responsibility. It is your responsibility. To grasp this deeply is what Zen teaches us. If one person truly understands, then that person's way of living will have a lasting effect on all of society. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.